All right, so this morning uh, we are going to continue uh, in our series in Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. Um, and uh, there's something in this passage made me think of this, uh, that there's a lot of times that people um, will question why God allows things to happen. You know, there's a big uh, earthquake that destroys buildings and people die, or there's a hurricane, or there's famine, or uh, drought, or... Um, you know, other kinds of natural disasters and people go like, why would God allow this? Why would God allow that to happen? Um, and, and personally, I've just never had a problem with that. I've never had a problem like with the, that. Those questions don't really bother me personally, right? I'm, I'm able to think kind of globally of like, hey, God's got a big plan in motion. Uh, the curse exists because of mankind's fall. There's a lot of things that are uh, that happen in the world that we might not understand why. Um, and, and that's okay. I can be, I can have, be at peace with that idea. Uh, but the things that bother me are like, if I can't find my keys in the morning, I'm like, why God, why would you allow this to happen? You know, or if I stub my toe in the middle of the night, or, um, I used to have a, uh, uh, or, a, uh, uh, I used to have this, this dog that just got out all the time and just, be just run away just like to run away um and would never go far it would just go down the street and find a new home um of people they liked better and and they would call me and i'd have to go pick it up and but there's times i'd be like running down the street after this dog or like get a phone call and i just go why why god do you saddle me with this dog that always wants to get away from me right um and that's and i bring that up because that's kind of what the this today's passage starts with is a minor annoyance that you might go, why would God allow this to happen? Um, and, and in this case, the annoyance is uh, that the donkeys have escaped. The donkeys have escaped. Um, so we'll start here in Samuel chapter nine, verses one through 10. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bicharath, son of Alphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in high honor. All that he says comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his young servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, Here I have me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. 
So they went to the city where the man of God was. Okay. So we start off with uh, Kish, the Benjamite. Kish, the Benjamite. He is a wealthy man. Um, he's uh, a Benjamite, which isn't impressive, right? That's something that that for us, we might not necessarily understand, but when we read this passage and it says Saul was, a, a, that Kish was a, a Benjamite, you go, oh, fancy, Benjamite, right? You don't know any different, it sounds impressive. But Benjamin was one of the smallest tribes in uh, in Israel. It was one of the, the most minor tribes. If you look at, in your study guide, there's a, a map of the tribal allotments of Israel. And in this map, you can see that Benjamin was not a large tribe. It had been given a very small piece uh, of land. And so his description implies that he would have been something like a feudal lord in this minor tribe, um, a wealthy landowner. At the time of war, he would probably be like leading a, a battalion of soldiers from his area. And he had this son named Saul. So Saul is also a Benjamite. And for the purposes of, of as we uh, kind of read through this and as we as we're going through this story, I know a lot of us go, oh wait, I know Saul. I know, I know who Saul is. I know what's gonna happen with this guy. But I would ask that you kind of set that aside, okay? Because let's take it as it comes, as the author intends us to kind of take the story. And at this point, he's just an impressive guy, right? And and if you're if you're thinking like, oh, I know about Saul, eventually he becomes Paul. Different, different guy. It's a different one. Different. This is Old Testament Saul. He's also got a big story. But let's kind of take it as it comes. And at this point, we see he's described as um, the, the, the most handsome man in Israel. Right? The most handsome man in Israel and taller than anyone else in Israel. Like a striking young man. Right In our day, he would be, have become a movie star or an or a, a athlete. Right? He's, he's impressive, both physically uh, strong and tall but also handsome. It would have been impressive and or intimidating to anyone he came in contact with. And he's sent on the most menial of tasks, go look for the donkeys. Go look for the donkeys. And this would have been a, a common, you know, agricultural annoyance. This is just something that happens. Um, anybody who has had animals knows sometimes they get out. Sometimes that, that's a problem. You have to go find them. You have to go track them down. And it probably happened before, right? It's probably not the first time that Sam, that Saul's father asked him to go look for the donkeys. It was certainly an annoyance, but it wasn't unusual. This is an everyday occurrence. And they search for a long time, and eventually they come to the land of Zuf. The exact location of Zuf is not known, but it seems to have been near Rama, where uh, Samuel lived, or even uh, a name for the countryside surrounding Rama. We don't know for sure. And Saul's servants suggest that, that they go to Rama, where there's a man of God, which we know is, is Samuel. Samuel is the man of God. He lives in Rama. But Saul doesn't want to go empty-handed. Right? He says, oh, I, can't, I can't just go, we can't just go ask him for nothing. We need to have something to give him. It was customary to give something to the prophet, um, or at that time known as the seer. And unfortunately, or fortunately, Saul's servant has a reasonable amount of money to give uh, the prophet. It's kind of unusual turn of events here that, that Saul doesn't have anything and, and his servant does. Right? His servant does have a, a bit of money that would be a proper amount to give um, the, uh, the prophet. 
So verse 9, we have something interesting happening there in verse 9 where he kind of has this aside. Uh, our translators put it in, in, in a parenthetical um, where he kind of just says, hey, back then they would say, let's go see the seer. But now uh, we would say prophet, right? He kind of clarifies for his readers uh, who this is. And, and comments like this are... Um, are included because the author was writing to a specific audience at a specific time. At the time they're writing to him, this man would have been known as a prophet. But back when it actually happened, they would have said seer. And so they, they mean the same thing. Um, he's just kind of clarifying terms, right? This kind of same kind of thing you might have to do when, uh, you know, you talk to young people today, you might need to clarify like, oh, I, let me explain what a fax machine is. It's a kind of like a an email right you might you might update it oh back then we would send a fax now we would send an email right something like that where you have to kind of clarify some of those terms we'll continue here in verses uh, 11 through 21 as they went up the hill to the city they met a young woman they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them is the seer here and they answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has just he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today at the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not come eat will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are not who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Samuel came, Yahweh had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send, you, send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be a prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the land, hand of the Philistines. For, they have seen my, they, for, that, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh, when Samuel saw Saul, Yahweh told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who will restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? So Saul and his servant, they go into the city and, and they learn that Samuel is there and, and he's preparing to uh, go to a sacrifice that day on the high place. And sacrificing on, on high places, which would be mountaintops, hillsides, you know, up, up where they could get high, um, that uh, was a Canaanite practice. It was common uh, in the land, in the promised land, uh, commonly where they would practice these sacrifices uh, to Canaanite gods, to the Baal gods and to uh, Molech and all these other gods. They would build these, these temples on mountaintops and hills to be closer to their gods when they sacrifice. The idea was we need to be up where they can see us, 
We need to get up where our gods can see us. And, and this was a sort of worship that Israel had been warned not to participate in. But in the days before the temple, these high places were used by Israelites for legitimate sacrifices, right? They kind of came into the land, they hadn't built a temple, and so they would use these high places where other sacrifices had been made in the past to other gods, and they would make legitimate sacrifices to Yahweh on those mountaintops. But Israel had been commanded, in fact, to destroy these high places. We see in Numbers chapter 33, 51 through 52, it says, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And we can see the results of this mistake, the fact that they didn't destroy these places. They just decided to repurpose them. We see these problems play out in the life of, uh, of King Solomon. So if we look at, as a brief detour here, 1 Kings 3, 2 through 4. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no, ho because no house had yet been built for the name of Yahweh. Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statues of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was a great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So here we see Solomon. This is much in the future of what we're looking at here with Saul and Samuel. But in the future here, Solomon is making sacrifices on these high places that he loved Yahweh. And so he's going to these high places and making sacrifices. So he made a thousand sacrifices to Yahweh on this one particular high place that was highly revered, right? Probably it was, it probably was very high and, and well built. And so he's making this sacrifice in this temple, making all these sacrifices to Yahweh. But then if we fast forward to chapter 11 of first Kings. We see it tell us that then Solomon built a high place for Shamosh, the ab 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 abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offer offerings and sacrifice to their gods. That was one of Solomon's downfalls, is that he acquired many wives. He married all of these uh, wives as a lot of treaties to the nations around them, but these these women drew his heart away. They asked for temples to be built to the gods that they worshipped growing up. And, they, and he built these temples and allowed them to worship there. And he even made sacrifices there. And distressingly, one of the temples he built was to Molech. And the way that Molech was worshipped was by child sacrifices. So it is very likely that Solomon sacrificed his own children to Molech as a result of this. Now, we see a kind of a tricky situation here. There wasn't anything wrong with Solomon sacrificing to Yahweh on the high places, but he had not clearly defined where the line was. He had not clearly defined where the line of right and wrong was, right? It was good and right to sacrifice to Yahweh on the high places, but worshiping and sacrificing to any other God on the high places was an abomination. And we ought to be cautious about the things that might lead us to sin. 
And that's, that's really what we see here is that sacrificing to Yahweh on these high places seems to have let, allowed this door open for Solomon to walk in and start sacrificing to these other gods. If he had never done that, is it possible that he would not have, have gone that way? Maybe. We don't know. The, big, the, the biggest problem we see here is that he didn't create a clearly defined line for himself of what he was allowed to do and not allowed to do. He did not clearly define where the line of right and wrong was for himself. This is why 1 Peter warns us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It doesn't mean we can never go anywhere or do anything that might have the potential to lead us to sin. That's not the case. It would make life very difficult because there are possibilities nearly everywhere. But we should be aware of our own temptations and of the potential for error in these different situations. Where might we go astray? Where will we need to make sure we have clearly defined boundaries of what we will do and what we won't do? So we back to the story at hand, right? Because I was just kind of all, that whole thing was aside on, on the fact that they're going up to this high place to make the sacrifices. Samuel is going up to do that. He meets Saul and Samuel gives him a bit of revelation, right? He tells him um, that the previous day he would, uh, or sorry, Samuel had, had been revealed by God that he would meet the man who would be Israel's king. Right? God had revealed to Samuel that he would meet Israel's king. The, the previous day, God told him, hey, tomorrow you're going to meet a Benjamite who's going to be the one that's going to lead the people. He's, he's going to be the king. And then sure enough, Samuel sees this striking young man walk up to him. And, and he knows, God reveals to him, this is the man. You, you've got him. This is the one that I told you about. And so he tells Samuel, that the donkeys had been found, right? He, he had only come to ask about where the donkeys were, but Samuel tells him immediately that they've been found without Saul even having to ask. Saul must have been so surprised by Samuel's knowledge of the donkeys before he even asked that he's willing to stay and eat with Samuel. He's willing to stay and come to the sacrifice. But we can imagine a scenario in which Saul is so focused on the donkey problem that he can't get back to his father that he missed the bigger, you know, he, we can imagine that he could be so focused on, oh, my donkeys have been found. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Prophet, Mr. Seer. Uh, we'll, we'll see you later. We got to get back to my father. Surely he has more work to do. That he's so distracted by the fact that he has this problem, right? That's the problem that he's dealing with. That was the annoyance that he was dealing with. And he was already worried about what, my, what his father might think about him being gone so long. So we can imagine that scenario. Because that's so often the way that we can be. Or that's so often the way that we are when we have these things come up in our own lives. Right? Of like, oh, I have to like... I'm delayed for some reason or something happened. I've got to fix this problem and let me just fix it and move on with my day. Where we can clearly see here that this whole donkey situation is devised to get Samuel and Saul together so that he can make this revelation to him about who he will be. 
But if we're so distracted by, by the thing that is in front of us, right? The fact that we can't find our keys or we spilled our coffee all over ourselves and have to change clothes now and I'm gonna be late for work now and what am I gonna do? We can be so distracted by those things that we miss what God might be trying to reveal to us. In verse 20, Samuel says something very surprising to Saul. Right, he says, For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? He's hinting at this idea of becoming king, right? Because becoming king would change everything for Saul. If he became king, everything would change for Saul. The king would be free to take the best of everything in Israel, right? We've, we've, Samuel already warned everybody about that, that he would take the best food, the best land, the best servants. And Saul is taken aback by this statement of, a, what, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and your father's house? Saul is like, but I'm just a Benjamite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Do you, did you not get that when I introduced myself? I'm from Benjamin. You know, little Benjamin. Like I, that's just a little backwoods. I'm not. I'm not anybody important. I'm not even from the most important clan in Benjamin. I'm from the humblest clan. Yet, yes, his father is wealthy, but he's like the wealthiest in the smallest clan, the smallest tribe. Right? He's 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 a big fish. He's a little fish in a or a big fish in a little pond. Right? That's what he's saying. He's like, yeah, I, this might be the case, but I'm not, certainly not this guy. Despite being so uh, handsome and, and tall and impressive, he seems to be a very humble guy. And that's a good start for someone who will be Israel's king because they're meant to stay humble, as we learned last week. We'll look lastly here at verses 22 through 27. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of the, those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which you said, which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at break of dawn, Samuel called up to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out to the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. So Saul is comes to this to sacrifice with Samuel and he's set at the head of the table, a huge table, right? It's a, it's a table with 30 people at it. And he's given this massive portion, a leg of lamb, right? The whole leg of lamb that he's given uh, to eat. And, and then he eats with, he's with everybody there. He eats this uh, meal with them. And then he goes back to Samuel's house to spend the night. And he's given a bed up on the roof, which was already prepared because Samuel already knew he was going to have a guest. Right? He knew that he was going to meet this man. He knew it was going to happen. 
And this was not an uncommon place to sleep either. Like the idea of, oh, I prepared a, a bed for you on the roof, right? If, if you went to somebody's house, you went to visit and they go, oh yeah, we got you all set up. There's a bed on the roof. You would go like, well, what are you talking about? I guess I'll get a hotel, right? But in this day and age and the way that homes were designed, this was not an uncommon place for people to sleep. It was not an insult of any kind. Um, it would have been nice, a nice place for him to sleep. And the next morning, Samuel tells Saul that he has uh, something to tell him, right? And, and he kind of said, he says, send your servant on. I got something to talk to you about. They're at the outskirts of the city. It's going to be just he and Samuel. And he's going to tell him something important, uh, which we won't know till next week. <laughs> Cliffhanger. But I, what I want us to see in this passage in general is that there's this divinely appointed chain of events that happens here. It's a unique set of events that led up to this moment, right? The First, the Israelite elders ask Samuel to anoint a king, right? That's, that's well after Saul is born. He's, he's a young man, so this is not far in the past. He's an adult at this point. He's already been, been born and grown up when this request is made. Then we see the donkeys get lost, and they get real lost, right? That's not an easy find. He has to go on this long journey to find them, and he's unsuccessful in finding them after traveling so far. And then they decide, his servant has the idea to go ask this prophet where the donkeys might be, right? Which, I mean, I just knowing that that's the kind of thing that people ask the prophets, doesn't that give you, like, just so much sympathy for the prophets? <laughs> Right, we just read their their books, or we read the the stories of the things they had to declare to Israel that were so important, and and even prophecies that foretold the future and foretold about Jesus and who He would be. But to know that their day to day was, you know, where my donkeys went, <laughs> like golly, like that's <laughs> just imagine all the dumb questions they had to answer all the time. But they go, they they, ha they happen to even have money to give this prophet and then Saul encounters Samuel near the gate of the city and asked him for directions and Samuel was told by God beforehand that he would encounter Saul that day all of these things line up to cause this moment to happen and this sequence of events was clearly orchestrated by God to bring Saul and Samuel together for this moment this is a, a clear demonstration of what Paul talks about in verses like Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 11, where he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This verse talks about God working all these things together. A similar verse in Romans chapter 8, 28, where it says, We know that those who love God, all things are all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This story demonstrates what these verses declare, that God is in control and working all things together for good. And I like taking these two verses together because if the Ephesians verse clarifies a bit of the of Romans 28, right? That it's the purpose of of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's God's purpose and God's will that he is serving, not ours. 
And we often read Romans 8, 28 and even quote it to one another when things are going poorly. And we like to just kind of fill in our own definition of good in that passage, right? When we say, hey, we know that God works all things together, works all things for those who, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Right? Has anyone ever said that to you when something's going badly? Hey, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that's what it's meant to tell you. Like, oh, it's going to resolve the way you want it to resolve. Right? Whatever is happening is going to resolve the way that you want it to resolve. It's good in your eyes. Right? It's the good that you have in mind of, yes, it would be good to me that uh, I recover financially in this situation or, or, this health problem I'm having resolves and everything is better and, and I don't have the problem anymore, right? Whatever the problem is, we like to fill in our definition of what good is in that situation. And that's natural. It's pretty natural, right? To the idea of, well, yeah, good is what's good for me. Of course, why not? Well, that's not what the verse itself is even saying. All things work together for God's definition of good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. So what is God's definition of good? Well, the context of this verse, it's defined in the very next verses, Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He defines this idea of good in this, in, the, in this next verse where he says that what he is trying to cause, what he is working things together for is that you be conformed to the image of his son. What is good is that you become more like Jesus. That's the highest good that God can cause in your life. Not to make you rich, not to make you uh, successful, but to make you like Jesus. And that's what he talks about in this passage. When we submit to the reality that God is working everything in our lives together for good, meaning that we would become like Jesus, we can see the events of our lives and even our mistakes in a whole new light. We can see even minor annoyances, minor problems that we face as part of that process. And sometimes it's just God trying to get our attention, right? Of, uh, hey, 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 you're going to forget about me? Forget about what's, what we're doing here. God wants us to be growing in him and to be trusting him. I'll wrap up with this three takeaways for today's message. Number one, uh, trust in God's sovereign plan, right? We see in this passage that God has a plan and, and sometimes it, it works in ways that we don't, understand right for all that time that Saul was traveling looking for the donkeys do you think he thought oh I wonder what God's up to no probably not he just thought where are these donkeys <laughs> right like how could they have gotten this far where could they be hiding did animals get them right he is going through all that stuff he's not thinking oh I bet this is a divinely uh, directed sequence of events that leads to me being told that I'm going to be the next king. No way. No way. So we need to also, number two, follow God's leading. 
look for what, what he's directing us towards. Look what he's doing in our lives. That's the last thing. Watch for what God is doing in your life. Sometimes he can be working in our lives and we not even notice it. We're not paying attention. We need to be looking for what he is up to in our own lives. I'm going to pray here in just a second and then we'll uh, take communion together. Uh, I'll pass the, uh, the tray around. You know, you just kind of pat, we'll just kind of pass it through the rows. Um, and then we'll take communion together and then we'll sing one more song before we uh, pack up and get out of here. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for um, this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you do direct our lives um, for your good, uh, for our good and for your glory. Pray that you would um, open our eyes to what you have in store for us and what you're doing with us. Pray these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. I'll pass them up first. No, it's okay, John.